Welcome to the After the Battle Campfire, presented by the Modern Ronin. I'm your host, Tommy Chase, and I'll be your guide through the stories that are about to be told. On today's episode, we have Dana Gilbert back for part two. We finish with her unique Navy career, and then we talk contracting. Dana went on to to work as a project manager in overseas contracting. She's been to many countries and has exciting stories she tells. Now, living in Washington, she works for the federal government. Give me 10 years. <laughs> I lied. <laughs> All right. So we're back with Dana for part two. We actually left at a very interesting point in your Navy career. Um, let's go back a little bit and get caught up. You. Um, so I you... left off. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, so we've talked about the two different rates that you had already been. Right. Aviation to religious uh, program specialist. Uh, big jump there. <laughs> then you let you told your 911 story, which is deeply touching. Um, or nine. Yeah. Nine eleven. Um, and then we talked about you coming where you and I met. And becoming so, another rate in the Navy. I think uh, you're one yeah. of the first three timers I know the yeah it was like a unicorn it was kind of fun um it's always hard to in the conversation people are like what'd you do in the navy i'm like which time <laughs> the first four years the second eight or the last four you know it's it's funny uh yeah so i transitioned to yn and i went from active duty to fts which is which, yeoman right yeah i was a yeoman i was a quad zero i was a nothing uh so i still had all my necs attached but I, I was quad zero, which I hated. I felt like I lost something because I didn't have this specialized rate. But I was a YN with an FMF pin, which really, people who didn't know my background, it really burned their ass. It really chopped them. They'd be like, how are you a YN with an FMF pin? I'm like, yo, hold up. I didn't join to be a YN. <laughs> Just something I'm doing to get me to the next place, you know? So was it, did you do that because you were just done with being an RP or was it for advancement? Um, so the story was I was in New Orleans uh, after the hurricane. We talked about how I was. In oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I was up for orders. I just had my son. My son was like three months old. I was pregnant again. Yay. Fun. And uh, my detailer was just a jackass and he was like you're going back to the marines i said well that's fine can i pick you know i i want to go back to the first mall and he's like no you're going to north carolina i'm like mm, no i'm not and he's like no you're going you're 2401 i can't get any females you're going to i think he was gonna send me to cherry point to some unit there in the second mall going over to afghanistan like 12 months after I get there. And I was like, I can't, I had a kid, I'm pregnant again. He's like, I don't care. He's like, you can sit in the rear for all I care, but you're going with the Marines. I was like, mm, no, I, I want to go to sea. Like I was dead set on going to sea. I was like, I have to get a ship under me as an RP or I'm never going to make cheap. And we fought and fought. And I waited till the last minute and he literally just wrote me orders. He's he said, all right, you're going to Korea then for a year. You're going to go to Chinhae, and then you can go wherever you want. And I said, I'm not going back to Asia. Like, how many tours are going to have in Asia? And he's like, that's it. That's where you're going. So I started asking around again. 
And as you know, I told you before, I transferred a transition from AD to RP on my own. I did my own package. So I was like, I can do this shit again. And I was right at the deadline. I think I was at right at 12 years. You can't transition to another rate after 12 years. And I was like at 11 months, 11 years and 11 months or something like that. I was right at the 12 year mark and I went to PSD and I'm like, Hey, what rates open? You know, they're like, well, uh, what do you want to do? And so I tried to go back to AD and the AD detailer was like, no, it's, it's full. You can't go anywhere. It's, it's closed out. And I'm like, well, and they, I said, what about air crew? I'd love to do air crew. I flew for a lot of years. And they said, um, no, that's closed out too. So, you know, we did a lot of back and forth for a couple of weeks and finally the detailers, uh, cause I knew enough people, you knew how I networked. And, um, so one of the guys was like, Hey, would you be a YN? I was like, well, yeah, I guess, I mean, I do admin anyways, you know, I was doing, uh, budgets and contracts and all that shit as an RP. So the, I put in a package and the YN detailer for FTS came down to new Orleans and he interviewed me. He's like, you want to be a YN? I was like, yeah, why the fuck not? <laughs> Who cares? It's, it's quad zero. How hard can it be? You know? And he's like, well, you know, we have this opening in Dallas for an admiral, admirals, uh, so a, a flag, flag writer, YN, right? And I was like, I can totally do that. I worked for three admirals in DC. And he's like, no, you don't have any experience as a YN. I'm like, I did this stuff indeed. I did protocol. I did dinners. I mean, I had dinner with the CNO, the Commandant of the Marine Corps. I'm like, we did nothing but protocol in my office. And he's like, no, you don't have any experience as a flag rider. I'm like, so send me to school. And he's like, no, you need to be a YM for one tour and then you can go. So I was like, okay. And so um, he goes, well, I've got NOSC San Antonio. And uh, at that time, you know, I was like single mom, but I was kind of almost married and my ex-husband lived in New Orleans. So I was, okay, you know, it's driving distance. I'll take it. So I get to San Antonio and this is a completely different Navy. And mind you, I've only had one real Navy tour in, in Santa in uh, New Orleans. I show up and I'm like, man, this is where the Navy goes to die. <laughs> you know, just... what, what year was that that you got there? 2008. Okay. So Hoffman was Hoffman there. Yeah. No, it was the other dude, the, uh, the older guy who just didn't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I was actually talking to Betsy, uh, our, our mutual friend, Betsy, and yeah. we were trying to remember his name for the life of us. Oh, I started with a C, I think. Um, you signed this signature enough. You should remember. Well, I didn't. Well, sometimes I did. <laughs> <laughs> I was great at doing signatures from my RP days. Uh, man, I can't remember his name. I can remember his face very clearly, yeah. but he only there for uh i want to say six to eight months after i got there because right after i had my daughter he left and i i'd only been there like five or six months when i had my daughter so it wasn't very long yeah because i remember then, he was a surface guy and the exo was a pilot right and he yeah he was an aviation guy and then um yeah slocum was the, the pilot. exo yeah slocum left and went to be purrs more on him later because he was helping me out and a great guy and then um and then hoffman came and uh. so explain to everyone what a nosk is besides so a whole 
in the Navy for, for active Navy. duty sailors to go retire. I hated it. Because, you know, I, I went from being really, really busy and, and having a lot of responsibility to just surfing the web all day long, which continues to be a trend. But um, so it's a Navy Operational Support Center, which supports all the FTS and the reservists in that region and their units. And the units can be anywhere from Singapore to Korea or whatever, but that's where they drill. And then we we help them with their training, their medical readiness, their dental readiness, their physical fitness readiness, all that stuff. And as you know, I was a big PT, good for you, good for me person for a long time. And I, I liked that. I mean, you know, that comes from being with the Marines. I enjoyed running everybody into the ground because yeah. it, it was fun. I hated it back, as you know, when I went to Iwakuni, but, you know, later on down the line, I loved it. And, and, and I'm going to parlay into that. So I used to run a lot and I used to run a lot of races. So I, so I was training for the Marine Corps marathon in 2009. This is a key point in, in the story. Um, if you have anything else to add, I'll, I'll run into that and then go further with it. Well, let's just say that uh, when I met you, I was part of the Navy wounded warrior thing that was going on um i had my shit that had to happen and ended up being assigned to the nosc with the ex with the former ceo uh heath warner just grabbed me and took me over to the recon side and said hey you're gonna be basically the acting lpo of fourth recon's uh active duty medical staff which literally meant i was in charge of myself because Heath was would have been my boss um we interacted from the Marine side. And then this guy, uh, Mark Kaufman, um, and less so him, his little, uh, his little Bert buddy, Vern Gardner, um, come in the names. I feel like we should, <laughs> I like naming names. Um, so commander at the time, uh, I think he was a Lieutenant commander at the time. Came in and was a new CO. With an 05. Let's just, yeah. I refuse to commander. He was an yeah. <laughs> And then uh, he had a spineless um, XO. Oh, for fuck's sake. For the life of me, cannot remember his name. And then his command I master chief was Vern Gardner, who thought that why people do it. This is still one of my biggest pet peeves. Why people do stuff is not important when we discipline you. We don't care about the why is what he used to say. Yeah. Which then leads to a whole bunch of tension between me and him uh, as a first class. Between a lot of people. Yeah. And then me making chief did not help the situation at all. And I was reveling in it. And I thought it was <laughs> So we both have our stories from the NOSC and from that particular command. It was life-changing. <laughs> Absolutely for both of us. life-changing. <laughs> um, yeah. So in your case, um, you were training for the Marine Corps Marathon. And shit got a little weird at some point in time. So I will, I will start it on that. So in 2009, I had signed up for the 34th Annual Marine Corps Marathon. And um, I went to D.C. and I hung out with a bunch of friends. 
and I ran that marathon and it was great. I ran it four hours and 45 minutes. It was an amazing race, had a wonderful time. It was like, it's always that, um, that saying, you know, everything's perfect until the fall, you know? And I mean, I was peaking, I was shit hot sailor. I thought, eh. Well, I think, I think universally everyone thought that you were a shit hot sailor, except for those who didn't. I took care of everybody I could, you know, because I, I had been raised early in the Navy with some terrible leaders. And I always told myself, I will never be those people. So when people came to me and they needed help, man, I've been over backwards. If I had the time, yeah, I'm going to help you. If I didn't have the time, I'd be like, hey, come back. I'll take care of you later, you know. And that word got around the NOS because they were used to a lot of, and I'm not talking bad on anybody who was there, but my predecessors they were used to a lot of fts sailors that did not give the reservists the time of day and i was like yo let me help you this is the easy fix you know this is the you know i was doing i was um putting in you know packages to get people's rank back i was putting in back pay i was i was doing all kinds of stuff and i was getting people all kinds of back pay and money and i was helping them get in college you know i was doing all kinds of shit because i had the time i had so much time on my hands there and i had the ability and i was like I'm not gonna make you suffer. I don't. I don't function in that old navy, you know. And and so I was. I, I was here, you know, and I was peeking, and I was doing all this great shit. I ran the marathon and all this stuff. So I get back, and a friend of mine. I'm not. I won't name names in this situation because we're all still very good friends, and um, we have mutual acquaintances and stuff. So my acquaintance <laughs> called me and said. Hey, I'm under investigation from the Marine Corps IG's office. I think you're going to be too. So I got notified ahead of time, about two days, two full days. And so I immediately lost my fucking mind and went through my email. It was, it was a fruitless effort at this point, but I went through my email and I'm like, who could it be? Well, I know who it was, but I'm saying, who could I personally infect, you know? And, um, so two days later, I get called in the skipper's office and Commander Hoffman, EXO, and Bash Chief are in there, and they hand me my my notification that I am under official investigation by the Marine Corps Inspector General's office for two counts of Article 134, which is adultery, and two counts of Article 92, um, fraternization with a superior officer, two, two counts of superior officer. And... Um, so they're like, you got any questions? I was like, nope. They're like, do you need anything? I was like, nope. I already had a lawyer. I already called one, got one. And a lot of my friends, as I'm a networking fool, a lot of my friends were, strangely enough, at the uh, JAG school in Newport. So I called one of my buddies who was a senior chief, and I was like, hey. And she's like, you need to be prepared to go to mass. And I was like, but, and she's like, nope, nope, here, here's the number to the lawyer, you know? And, and so I got a lawyer and the lawyer was like, be honest with me. I was like, okay, how much time do you have? You know, and because, and, and I have to preface it, preface it with this. I, I was in DC and I spent the majority of my time with officers all the time. And then I left there and I it was an RP and I was personally with a single officer all the time as, you know, bodyguard and 
you develop this relationship and friendship. So I was on a first name basis with countless, countless officers and generals and admirals. I mean, Bob, Steve, Jack, Mac, I mean, emails. It would be like, hey, Joe, I need this. It's sure, no problem, Dana. You know, and this shit, my lawyer was like, how many people do you call by their first name? And I'm like, everybody. And he's like, you gotta be shitting me. And I'm like, no, I can go back through my email and make a list of people that I had to contact and say, look, you might be under investigation. And so this was like an an STD thing. Yeah. It it was like contact tracing, but in a, in a fraternization sort of way. And, uh, it was, it was terrible. So that was November. And I never knew how long the investigation was going to take. Well, this was actually, it was October. It's October. So I didn't know how long the investigation was going to take. It could be any day. So every day I'd walk into the NOSC thinking, is today going to be the day that I lose my career? You know? And um, meanwhile, I had to keep on going. Like, life was fucking good. November, October, December, January, February, March, April, May, June. And Nine the- months. I had to put on this fucking face every day. To put this into perspective, just so people understand. So what the NOSC does is on a Monday through Friday uh, scenario, it's a bunch of active duty, FTS or active duty, who are doing stuff like you said, getting people ready, getting getting the program ready to run for that one weekend. Or I think in that case, when we were both over there, it was two weekends a month that between 300 and 400 reservists would come in on the main weekend and maybe a hundred others on the alternative weekend. So we had, our staff was what, 20? Yeah. If even that, outside of the Marines that were co-located with us. Yeah. So So it was a very, very small group of people. And when whether people knew exactly what was going on, people knew that something was going on. Maybe not privy to it, but they did know. There was a small, small group of people who knew I was under investigation. Very small. With the, you know, with the, uh, the higher ups. And then there was, you know, Senior Chief Shank. When I told him I was under investigation, he's like, why don't you just come in here and punch me in the face next time? He's like, it'd be a lot less surprising. <laughs> and uh, so for nine months, every single day uh i was under investigation and the stress tom the stress was unfucking bearable i honestly to this day don't know how i made it through without like a serious stomach peptic ulcer or something i mean it was it was to this date probably the most stressful thing i've ever been through in my life and 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 then the day the day I knew the day was coming again because the the initial person who was under investigation uh, had told me that he got his shit back. But but let me go back to when the IG personally flew down from Washington D.C. to interview me. That was fun. So uh, when I had got notified, they said uh, this was like a I think it was a Monday I got notified. They said the IG will be here Wednesday morning to interview you. And I was like, what? They, he said, yeah, they're, uh, they're flying in from DC. You have an interview at 9 a.m. We're going to put them upstairs and, you know, we'll secret you, spirit you off. Nobody will know you're going up there. I'm like, they could know anyways. 
So these older women came down from D.C. Now, mind you, I had been the legal petty officer for a couple of years now, right? And I knew that manual for courts martial, like the back of my hand. And I knew my Article 31 rights. And I knew what they could ask me and what they couldn't ask me. And my lawyer was like, you don't say shit in, even if you have a mouthful. He's like, you go in, you blah, 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 you get the fuck out. He's like, I don't care what they say that's what you do and all my lawyer friends at the jag school was you know they were backing it up and i was like yeah so i go in and there's like these three little ladies that are like in their 60s and then one's got parkinson's real bad that i couldn't not look at and um so i go in you know and i have to say my name and i swear in and they read my bio and then they read other people's bio and do you know them yes how do you know them you know and so we go through this this fucking rigmarole for legal purposes, you know, and they're recording me. And, and, um, so they, they strongly hint at me writing a statement. My lawyer's like, you don't write shit. He's like, cause if you say the sky is blue, they're going to be like, well, this guy is actually purple today. And you said the sky was blue. So you lied, you know? And, and so I, you know, I declined my article 31 rights. I'm not going to write a statement. I'm not going to say anything. And I, I said, is, is that all the paperwork? I said, I believe it to be all the paperwork. And they said, yeah. So I slide across the table. I grab my ID card and I put it in my jacket and I stand up and they're like, where are you going? I said, this interview is over. They said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. My article 31 rights state, if I do not give a statement after that moment that I signed that, I can end this interview at any time. You have asked me all the pertinent questions. I have answered them to the best of my ability. I have signed away my right to make a statement. Interview is done. They lost their fucking minds. They started yelling at me, telling me they were going to get me with everything they got. They've got everything. They're going to see me. You know, I'm going to be at court martial. And I was just like, do what you got to do. And I walked out the door. I said those words. I was like, do what you got to do. And I walked out the door and proceeded to have a heart attack on the way down the stairs. <laughs> I was like, I just fucked myself, you know? And uh, these women did indeed come after me with, with uh, the kitchen sink and, and, and they came after a lot of friends. So what they did was the initial person who had started the whole thing, they went through her email and they found these people and they went through his email and they found me and they went through my email and they found these people and it it cascaded and it rippled and it echoed and i lost a lot of good friends over this and uh what was the catalyst for going hard after everyone because i so what it was is there was one main person and a lot of females um and every female but me made a deal and i refused because i was like i was a willing participant you know i mean i called this person by their first name we were friendly on for a number of years you know many many and i'm talking decade or more you know so i i refused to make a deal and lie because for me that was principle why would i and and i and i was being told by everybody you should sell this person up the river. You should, you know, they're senior officer. You're going to get slammed. They're not, you know. And I was like, no, why would I do that? I, you can read my emails and see I was not coerced. And they were like, they used their senior rank. I was like, they did not. I am a grown ass woman. 
I made these decisions. And strangely enough, we always used to joke, a bunch of us did that, you know, one of these days we're going to get caught. We're going to be the front page of the Navy and Marine Corps Times. Uh, yeah, uh, we almost were. <laughs> uh, be, because of, of some of these people's positions at that time in the military. And, um, and like I said, I won't name names or areas or locations or services, but I mean, it was pretty equal across the board. And I ended up being the one who got the most uh, destruction, I would say catalyst, fallout, uh, collateral damage because I refuse to uh, make a deal. I refuse to make a statement. I refuse to uh, give up any information. I refuse to acknowledge. I neither acknowledge, acknowledged or denied information. I just simply said, I acknowledge receipt. I did not say yes or no. I mean, so I was, I was a difficult uh, witness. Well, or, the, the irony is you were a difficult witness because that's, what your rights right allowed was, you to do that was my absolute right was to not make a statement and, and take it as it came and i even yeah. said that i i said whatever comes comes i i'll take it like a fucking grown-ass woman it is what it is because i have made this bed and i'll lay in it yeah i just, lie about it I, I i hate seeing it when people who are just exercising their rights like hey i don't have to say anything to you that is my yeah. right not they get the shit, but the people who yeah. I'm, I'm going to make the, the assumption that some of those people walked in there and said, tell me what I need to say so I can have my Navy career. Uh, yeah, because I pulled the FOIA, uh, the Freedom of Information Act on that investigation, I think, in uh, right after I got out and I got it about a year later. And yeah, I mean, they how high do you want me to jump, man? You know, they 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 sold the farm and then some and sold people upriver, you know, and it. <laughs> It was disheartening, you know. So and, who were who were these ladies that were interviewing you? Were they uniformed or were they IG? They were OIG women, you know, GS fifteens. Oh, okay. You know. so, so civilian civilian government. Yeah, so, so so in June, I got notified by a couple people that they had gotten their shit back. They had been to mass. They had, you know. So I knew it was coming. Again, I knew it was coming. And uh so I get pulled in by Master Chief and he says, look, it's uh, it's back. I said, OK, well, how long? And he said, two days. We're reviewing it now. And we had remember that old lieutenant sat in the back. Older, uh, way older. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can't think he of his reviewed, name. He reviewed my package because Commander Hoffman and Master Chief wanted a third-party independent non-biased reviewer and he reviewed my package because i got to see all this because you're allowed to see what you're charged with uh, and i'll say that again when i get a little further down for some sailors that may be listening um so he reviewed my package and recommended nothing you know other than like your standard you know whatever not not busting me or anything and he's like you know she just She's a good sailor. She's got great evals. She's never been in trouble. Well, I never got caught. Okay. Let's put it that way. I well, got then, Therefore, you never got in trouble. Right. So I never got in trouble. Yeah. And um, so he he recommended, you know, I've been through enough. She's been under investigation for 10 months, blah, blah, blah. So I get told, you know, we're going to have mass 
I think it was a Wednesday or a Thursday and um, it was June 10th. I remember that. And uh, they said, you know, be prepared. And my friend, she was always honest with me. She said, Dana, you need to be prepared to lose it, to lose a lot. And I was like, no, man, I'm not going to lose, right? He's not going to bust me, you know? And um, sure as shit, man, I went in there and the tone changed 10 minutes before we went in. 10 minutes before Vern, Master Chief was like, you're going to be okay. And then he suddenly just was like, He's like, Gilbert, he's like, don't cry, don't cry. And I was like, why? He's like, I think, I think you need to be strong. I mean, I'll give Master Chief this because I, it wasn't his decision. It was, it was purely Commander Hoffman's decision. And I don't know where he was getting his guidance from somebody over in Jacksonville or something. And we went in and he, he gave me everything, but, uh, 45 days restriction, you know, he, busting me a rank 45 days extra duty 45 days half months pay times two months you know I mean you name it I got it and uh he wanted details he wanted details and let me back up he pulled me in there and he's like you did not make a statement and I said no and he said why and I said I I didn't want to make a statement because uh, it does it does nothing for my case. You you've got everything. What what is my statement going to do? He goes, well, I just want to know your thought process. Why did you do this stuff? And Master Chief's over here visibly having an issue, and he's you know he's breathing hard, and I'm like, and this is where Hoffman fucked me, and I never told anybody about this. He said, just tell me why you did it. And I said, well, if I tell you, what is that going to do? And he says, well, it'll help me make my decision better. And I won't be as hard. So I signed away my rights in that mask. And I told him everything he wanted to know. And then he busted me anyways. I, I feel like he had a puritanical um, side to him. Let's just leave it at that. Master Chief was having a fit that when I signed my rights away, he was shaking his head and he was like, you know, you know how you like put one weight on weight on your one foot and the other. And he, yeah. I, I didn't like the guy, but I will say at that point, I should have paid attention to his body clues because he was doing everything he could to tell me not to do it. And I did it anyways. As soon as Hoffman was like, tell me why you did it. He's over here making noises. And that the, uh, exo lieutenant was doing the same and if I just would have listened to them and taken their clues I wouldn't have said anything it wouldn't have made a difference I was gonna say I don't think I, I I think he and I am highly critical of Mark um but I do think that he had some puritanical issues and he also had some control issues yeah yeah and, and if the, you would have said no he would have busted you the exact same way I, I know. And that's, you know, what, what burned my ass the most was I felt like I was begging for something that was already gone. And, and I knew I was, and I still did it. And I gave him that satisfaction. And I swear to Christ, it still gets me worked up to this day that I put myself in that position for somebody who didn't deserve it. And I didn't deserve that, you know, because I thought, 
it was what he wanted to hear. And so, of course, you know, he busted me and I lost my shit and I immediately put in an appeal. And so I go home and uh, the next day they call me in and, and I'm thinking maybe he's changed his mind. And so they call me into the exo's office and they have me sign, uh, forget what it was, notice of administrative separation. That's right, because of your higher tenure. No, no, because uh, no? he felt risk to the Navy and he wanted to admin sep me. Yeah, no, it wasn't my higher tenure. He felt I was a risk to the Navy after consulting somebody that night and he wanted to separate me within 30 days. And I oh. lost my shit. I signed it. Actually, no, I refused to sign it. And I threw it back at the lieutenant. And I said, this is fucked up. And you know it. And I started screaming at Hoffman. And Master Chief's like, get a hold of yourself. I said, no, this is fucking bullshit. I said, I'm getting my ass handed to me while everybody else gets to fucking retire. And everybody else gets to walk away with their ranking hand. But I'm getting thrown against the wall. I was like, fuck all of you. And I walked out of the NOS. And Master Chief's like running after me. I slammed the lieutenant's door open. So he's like, I can't believe she acted like this to me. And um, so I call my lawyer and my lawyer's like, all right, we need to get character letters. And I'm like, no problem. Done. This was, remember, we went out that night, I think. Yeah, I think so. so we went drinking. And I went and I proceeded in the span of two work days, four calendar days to get 63 character letters. Five of them were from admirals. 20 of them were from senior officers. A whole bunch more were from chiefs and the like. And um, so Monday, I come in and I've got all these character letters. I'm doing, I have got a mission. I'm like, fuck this motherfucker. I am going to get this. And um, so Tuesday, my lawyer calls Hoffman and says, she has an admiral willing to fly down from Washington, D.C. to be on her admin set board. Are you willing to have that exposure? And Hoffman was like, no. And he called me in and said he was dropping the admin set. Within the span of like four work days, I went from being almost admin set to we're going to drop it. And his excuse was, well, you know, I thought about it over the weekend and I realized I was making a mistake. And I was like, yeah, you were. And Master Chief was like, Petty House. I was like, uh, I mean, my admiral that I used to work for, Admiral Baker, um, I worked for him when I was a third class. And he was a, I think he was a lieutenant or commander. He was commander. And so I, I knew him when he was commander and then captain. And then now he was the deputy chief of Navy chaplains. And he was like, if I got to fly there, I'll fly there. And I was like, thanks, I appreciate it, you know? And he's like, nope, no problem. He's like, everybody makes mistakes. He's like, I want to be on your board. He's like, I want to be one of the key members. And I was like, roger that. And my lawyer was like, ooh, this is going to be good, you know? <laughs> so they dropped the admin step. And, and to be honest with you, after I got over the, the sting of my ego, um, it was freeing. It was... Man, it was liberating because I didn't have to do shit anymore. Now I'm higher tenure, right? I'm getting out in May of 2012 with just over 16 years in. And I'm like, 
I don't have to do shit. I got no tests to study for. I got no training I have to do. I could fail fucking PRTs if I wanted to. I was like, I don't give a fuck. People would be like, we have to do this. I was like, do we? Do we? You know? I mean, it was it was great. I was like, I don't give a shit. You know? And um, so then they put me on the second drill weekend, which was for the CBs. And I was running that bitch by myself with like, I think Landeros was with me doing um, supply. And then I think there was one other person, one of the medical, one of the corpsmen, and it was me. And I was doing training. I was doing pay. I was doing PT. I was doing, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. I was, I was doing it all except for medical and supply. And it was, it was fun. And these guys were loving it because I was, I had a whole drill weekend by myself. I didn't have any any distractions. I was like, what do you need done, man? Let me help you out. I helped Chief Buckholtz get his rank of chief back. I helped another person, I forget who it was, get first class back. He got busted to E5. I got him back to E6. Was, was that the guy who, we had one guy, and I cannot remember who it was. Uh, he was a first class. Got his thin medals. And apparently a uh, Hoffman saw him. No one caught it. He had the Defense Superior Service uh, Medal, which is like a super. It was. High. It was. He, the kid didn't even know what it was. That was the worst right. part. Right. So he got busted for that. Hoffman and this Hoffman was on a roll after me. He busted like three or four people right after me. I mean, he was just fucking yeah. nailing them. And so I made it my personal, personal fucking mission in the Navy to do everything I could to disrupt Hoffman's life. So. Uh, <laughs> So this guy comes to me and he's in tears and he's got kids. And I was like, I know the policy just for that. And so I wrote this massive, you know, uh, rebuttal letter up and I attached the policy and all his evals and all this shit. And I sent it up to Dallas to his reserve unit. And then I got it back and I sent it to Bupers and it came back via message. And Chief Lott was like, where's this message coming from? I was like, oh. I did that a couple months ago <laughs> and I did that like three or four times and I got called in and they're like, you've got to stop doing this. And I was like, Oh, I'm running drill weekends by myself and I have the authority to sign on this stuff. So then they, they cut that shit. So then they had um, occasional chiefs come in on those weekends to be with me because I was, I was pencil whipping all kinds of shit. Well, just, just to put this into clarity, legally, legally yeah, I was going to say, just put this into clarity. So one of the powers, and I will say powers of a yeoman, along with uh, PSs, personnel specialists, is they get what's called bi-direction authority. So the CEO can delegate his authority to have his signature signed by direction to a yeoman, which typically, right. if you're the only yeoman on staff that day, you have to have the authority because you can't be on the phone. Like, you need to come in and sign this. You might as well do drill weekend with me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, so I'm going they, around doing all kinds of stuff. So it's a weird, it's a weird catch that you had just been busted by a guy who obviously did not have like, good vision on you and you kept your bi-direction authority because you had to. Uh, and it got reissued in YN2's name. So it wasn't an oversight. They oh, knew it did. 
Yeah, it had to be because I was now a YN2. I was no longer a YN1. So it had to be reissued for the drill weekend. So I was legally doing stuff. They just didn't like that I was doing it and not telling them. And I got all these people's rank back. I got one guy like a year's worth of back pay. Man, I had Starbucks cards of plenty. I'd come in on a drill weekend and lift my keyboard up. And there'd be like four or five cards under there. Um, the chief Buckwolds, he got me a three hundred dollar gift card to Starbucks because well, I got his rank back with back pay. You so know, someone like you is both super helpful but super dangerous when it comes to reservists because I, being a former reservist, who my shit happened and I stayed on active duty for way too long. Um. All of that being said, there's a lot of shit that we have no clue. You could be a YNC, so a chief yeoman, which would have been a rank above you before you got busted, and not have the knowledge that you, who did this every day, uh, oh, I had. For... So yeah, you I probably saved a lot of people. I did. I, well, the thing was, I wouldn't have known what I knew if I hadn't done that tour in D.C. So I did a lot of policy work in DC. I helped to rewrite the religious program specialist policy, the 7010.6 alpha when I was there. And, and it was a massive policy. So I really got into liking Navy policy and I understood how to read between the lines of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed, what I could do, what I couldn't do, you know? And so I got really good at Navy policy. So when people would come to me with problems, I'd be like, I know the policy for that. You know, and I knew how to do packages because I had been doing my packages my entire time in my career. So it was no thing. I could whip up a package with a letter, sign it, and send it off to 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 uh, NAVPERS in the span of, you know, a half hour. And and they'd be like, so that's it? I'm like, that's it. We'll hear something next week, you know? And and sure enough, and I knew, <laughs> I knew enough people at NAVPERS, I'd be like, hey, Steve, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Commander. <laughs> can you look at this package for me? You know, I had people doing that left and right. And uh, so on my own personal stuff, I personally appealed my bust uh, three times. I was, I was allowed to appeal it within 10 days. So I appealed it. And then I was allowed to appeal it in one year, which I did. And then I was allowed to appeal it right before I was supposed to transition out. And I did, and it got knocked down every time. But the problem was when you appeal, you have to get the recommendation of your commanding officer and your master chief. I was not allowed to see their letters. So I would put the package together and I would send it to them. They would write a letter, give it to the CEO, he'd write a letter, and then they would send it off. Um, so I never got to see the letters. I did know somebody at NAVPERS and I was calling them up, but he couldn't see the package he could only check with people whether or not it got approved or not. So I would find out before I ever got the message that it was not approved. So I did appeal it a bunch of times. So I don't know if he wrote, you know, she's a piece of shit. She should never stay in. I hate her. She's made my life a living hell. You know, I mean, I, I did. I, I, I never had a bad attitude. I never walked around mopey, poor me. I never... I never gave the satisfaction of being busted. Never, not once. And if I was having a moment, I would go out to my car and I would cry it out or I'd go to the bathroom and I'd suck it up and I'd put on this smile and I'd be like, yes, sir. Yes, petty officer. You know, I, 
I kissed so much ass, they didn't know whether or not I was being sarcastic or sincere. Yeah. And I'm again, this is this is the same CEO that I dealt with my shit on. And I will tell you, I don't think that guy, once he makes a decision, would ever do anything to override it. Just no. I I have heard a couple things in the waning years that he went to where Italy, I think, after he left the NOSC. I think so, yeah. And worked for a flag officer and got his ass handed to him quite a few times and he became a different person i do I know that so. he is a captain now or was oh good for him yeah so during that time though during this post bus time you were also going through some other issues yeah my back oh my god my back so i stopped running because it was actually the marine corps marathon that broke my back it literally broke my back and after i ran the marathon couldn't run anymore and i kept trying to run and i'd make it about 10 minutes into my run and I'd be like, God, I can't run. And prior to that, like the tops of my feet were going numb and some of my hips, but I never thought it was a back issue because it never went down my legs. It never went anywhere. I used to think, man, I'm tying my shoes too tight, you know, uh, stuff like that. My feet would go numb and I'd be in my boots and I'd be like, God, I mean, my boots a little tight, you know? I mean, so it got to be really, really bad in the spring of 2011. And um, it got so bad, I wasn't sleeping at night. So I go to my doctor and I'm like, hey, I think I need to see somebody. I think it's because I've had four kids and epidurals. And because it always hurt right in that spot where they gave epidurals, it didn't go anywhere else. It was like right at the base of my back. And she's like, all right, well, we'll do an MRI and we'll send you off to the, to the neurologist neurosurgeon and um so i do the mri and i go over to bmc and the guy comes in and he's all he's late he's running late he's like okay so tell me about the accident and i'm like uh i'm here for a consult man and he's like no no tell me about the accident i said uh i think you got the wrong person and he's like no no you're you're petty officer gilbert right and so he pulls up my mri and he's like how'd you break your back uh, I said, again, you know, we played this game a couple times. I was like, I think you have the wrong person. He's like, no, this is you. This is your spine. You've got some hairline fractures. Your disc has collapsed. How'd you do it? Did you fall on an aircraft? I'm like, no, I would have remembered. And he's like, did you get in a car accident? I was like, no, you know, so we, we go through this and we can't figure out what it is. So he's like, all right, I'm going to send you to pain management. And I was like, well, I thought you just told me it was broken. He's like, well, it's not bad. You know? And I'm like, okay, it's not bad. So I go to pain management and they give me like 200 pills of tramadol and, and wish me Godspeed, you know, and they're like, we'll try a couple of things. So I did everything in the book with them. I did crazy shit. I did biofeedback. I did psychologist. I did, you know, acupuncture. I, I did it all and it didn't help. And uh, finally I see this doctor and he's like, no amount of pain management is going to make your spine grow back together. He's like, we need to do surgery. So in 2011, in November, I have my first of many back surgeries. I had an anterior lumbar inner body fusion where they go through the front and they put a cage in with four, four pins and, and they, you know, tell you to have a good day. And it was great for about three months and then uh, it started to hurt again. I remember you went through the uh, nerve ablation because you became someone that I was pointing people to to say 
they were like, we're at pain management. They want to talk about doing this nerve ablation. I remember saying, go talk to Gilbert because they tried, they offered it to me at one point in time. And I was just absolutely hell no. That was the worst thing I've ever done. I, I, uh, I'm still fucking mentally scarred from that. That was the most pain. So like the nerve ablation, uh, well, that's where they burn your nerves, right? If I, I think that's, yeah, if I remember yeah, right. They also did a disc, discogram uh, where they put these rods in your remaining disc and they heat it up under the premise of if they heat it up, it'll spread out further and cushion better. I almost threw up. I was in so much pain and I passed out because they can't do it with you under any kind of narcotics because they got to know that's the right place. So, you know, they play Ooh. the Money and Mo game. Does that hurt? Does that hurt? How does that feel? And then when you scream, they're like, hey, we got the right one. It, yeah, I, that medicine practice there. Uh, yeah. Besides the fact they got me highly addicted to pain meds. Uh, I could get 200 pills every 10 days. All I had to do was wait 10 days, call the appointment line, get 200 pills more. That's why but, I lost so much weight. Well, you know, tramadol is not a narcotic and it's not supposed to be addictive at all. That's what they oh, told yeah. me. Have you ever gone through withdrawals on that bitch? <laughs> no, I, I took I, it for a while, but I, fortunately it, I hate pills. So uh, I, I was, I was eating them like Mentos, man. I lost so much weight. I'd be like, Oh, I'm hungry again. Let me take a pill. I'm not hungry anymore. You know, I mean, it was, the withdrawal from that was terrible. I, you know, Bamsi Bamsi was handing out fentanyl pops like it was candy. Oh, I, I was like, how do I get a hold of those? Where can I get one of those? <sighs> you know, one of my buddies was like, you really want one? I was like, I'm willing to try it. You know, <laughs> I was in so much pain. You know, it was ridiculous. So right before I got out in uh, May, I go to the doctor and they're like, hey, your back's not healing like it should. Like, what do you mean? I feel great. I was like, kind of hurts every once in a while. They're like, you've broken two screws and it's not fusing. And I'm like, it'll be fine, right? And they're like, well, you know, they never gave me a definitive answer. So I walked away and I was like, I'm fine. I'm getting out, you know? And um, so I, I met a friend and he's like, hey, you're, you're getting out soon. I said, yeah. He goes, you want to work overseas? And I said, yeah. He says, well, I need, I need an office manager at the new embassy complex in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. And I was like, where? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, do, do you think you could, you know, work over there? And I was like, hell yeah. And so, you know, I applied for this job and they're like, yeah, we, we totally want you. How much do you want an hour? And I was like, I get to make my own. Long story short, they were paying me a stupid amount of money an hour. <laughs> And um, they're like, when can you go? I'm like, well, May 1st, I'm out. And they're like, okay, here's your ticket for May 2nd. Nobody believed me that I had this job. Everybody thought I was blowing smoke up their ass for what reason? I don't know. I didn't realize you left that quick. Yeah, I, it was 24 hours, man. I got on the plane May 2nd, uh, like 11 a.m. to Dow to, to Houston, and Houston to London, London to Bishkek. Yeah, and uh, so they were like, what are you going to do after the Navy? I was like, oh, I'm going to go work at the embassy in Kyrgyzstan. They're like, sure you are. It's great. It's a good story. But what are you going to do? And I was like, literally, I'm, I'm flying out. And nobody believed me. So May 1st, I get called in to get the obligatory, you know, NAM. And uh, Lieutenant Landeros was the XO at the time. And 
he was like, he's like, Dana, this is like a horror movie. He's like, he's like, I you're gonna get an award and I know something bad's gonna happen, but I just don't know when it's gonna happen. Like everybody thought I was gonna lay this nuclear bomb on my way out the door. And I had thought long and hard. I'm like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say to the command that robbed me of my career that all I ever wanted was to be a chief in the Navy, you know? And so I get my NAM and they're like, Dana, the floor is yours. And I said, thanks. And I walked toward the door and, and Mash Chief goes, you don't have anything to say? And I stopped and I turned around and I said, Master Chief, what is there left to say? And I walked and I didn't slow down. I walked all the way out to my car. You could have heard a pin drop. Nobody said anything. They didn't know what to say. Man, my phone was blowing up. They were like, oh my God, that, that was better than anything you could have ever said. I was like, I wasn't going to lower myself to that level and, and be petty, you know? It was just... well, th that's the funny thing is that they gave you an award. But they Why? wouldn't help you Why? out with your appeal. Why? Yeah. Why would you give me a name? Why, Tom? <laughs> I threw that bitch in the trash. <laughs> I think I threw it in the trash on the way out the door, to be honest with you, if I recall correctly. It's like, I don't need this. <laughs> you know, honestly, if you wanted to hurt Vern in any way, that would have been the thing to do. It would have been to throw it away in his face. He, <laughs> he had this thing in without going into a whole bunch of detail he gave me my final eval the day i walked out i think we talked about this and one of the things that he marked down was sailorization you don't know anything about the sailors you, you and i'm like i can tell you every sailor's issue at this fucking command half of the reservists that i don't even know what do right. you know he's like well you know this is your final eval it's important i'm like oh okay who, who's actually gonna look at it once i'm out of the navy <laughs> And I showed up there for uh, it was June. So I showed up there two weeks later due to the chief's initiation and haven't stopped since. And I think it bugged the fuck out of him for the length of time that he was there, that I was so participating in really kind of going out of the way to devalue his, his use there. Well, the thing is, is you and I were raised a little differently and in blue side sailors never ever understand the mentality of, of green side sailors and they never get it they never get the dark humor they never get the the camaraderie they never get the the um just the cohesion that we have with our people and the loyalty that we have with our people there's never any oh well you're an e7 and you're an e6 and below you know it's it's like you're my sailor i you know you're the best sailor i've ever had until you show me that you're not you know and and, and there's that whole thing of, you know, we care for each other. And, and then I found out when I went to the blue side for that brief moment, it's not like that. No. It's not like that at all. There's such these clear lines of delineation between ranks and there's these clicks. And I never had that with the Marine Corps. I never not once had that with the Marine Corps. I don't I, care. So many different units. I also do think that it's more pronounced at uh, remote Navy commands. Yeah. Yeah, um, because it else yeah it's like, no where it should be the exact opposite it should be tighter knit like that nos that that 20 people that are at the nos should be one of the most tight-knit commands for an active duty command oh going back a moment when i was uh working on that separate drill weekend the the admiral up in dallas 
I forget what unit was, wrote me a letter of commendation and he came down to, to Nas San Antonio and called Commander Hoffman in and made Commander Hoffman give that to me in a ceremony. <laughs> I forgot about that. It was awesome, man. He was like, I'm so happy to give this to Wyant too. He's like, actually, Commander Hoffman, why don't you come up here? He did not like him. He said, why don't you come up here and give this to Betty Officer Gilbert? She's really deserving of this. And everybody's like, oh, yeah. Woo! <laughs> that was uh, great. You gotta love it. <laughs> I did. I live for moments like that. Uh, you know? Well, and I remember, <laughs> I, I remember things got weird. Like, the old command prior to the Hoffman era never did muster. No. And then I remember, I'm like, what, what is this muster thing? Because, you know, with the oh. Marines, it's like, uh, I'll be in the BAS. Yeah, I'll, I'm here. I'm alive, dude. Yeah. I got my coffee. Get yeah. out of my face. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Marines would always go out and do their fucking muster. But yeah, Corman, yeah. we go hide. Yeah, and it was different. Yeah. I think it was is I was I was kind of you know I was always a little lone ranger when I was with the Marines I I was you know RP corpsmen are a little different you guys have your your area RPs are just kind of like in this we don't know what to do with them face you know yeah. I mean but hey at least you got to be called Doc whether it was truthful or not yeah I'd be like I'm not a Doc <laughs> close but no. hey Doc we no. cool <laughs> like, yeah but so. yeah I mean it did it got it got weird. I was so glad to leave. And I, and I tell you, it was a rough transition from the military into civilian life because you're used to people doing their jobs and then you get out in the civilian world and these motherfuckers just doing whatever they want. And you'd be like, tell him to do his job. Well, you know, I really can't. Why can't you? Well, you know, he doesn't really work for me. He works for this guy over here. And I'll be like, so tell, well, you know, it's not the same way. It was, it was a rough six months for me. Uh, and I was doing the overseas contractor. We call it the idiot tour, you know, the IODOT tour. It was, uh, it was hard. It was rough. It was different. Uh, it was a learning curve. And I realized really quickly, no one gives a shit what you did in the military. They really don't care. They don't even care your rank. They want to, did you serve honorably? Do you have a good DD 214? Yeah, cool. Go that way. You know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And so I didn't. How long were you in um, Kyrgyzstan? A year. And then I, I left there. Uh, I quit. And I was trying to hang on to my 330. So I went and lived with some friends in Greece. So I lived in Greece from May to august what is 330 uh so if you're out of the country the united states for 330 days doesn't have to be consecutive uh your pay is tax-free up to at that time it was ninety-eight thousand dollars, i think and i was making a lot more than that so i really wanted that tax-free status and so i lived in greece for a while just living off my savings sitting on the beach on the mediterranean every day drinking mythos beer and eating enough Greek salads to fill a restaurant. I mean, I had a, a great time and they, my friends uh, had a house on Andros Island. So I would be back and forth from Athens to Andros all the time, just living in the South of Greece. It was, it was great. And then uh, I came back to the States and got a job with Pernix, uh, which was a really great company. They gave me a lot of opportunities, small company. And I went over to do 
the embassy upgrades in Baku, Azerbaijan. And so I was uh, in Azerbaijan for a year and then I came back to the States and then I went to, so we had a satellite office in DC. So I was working out of DC and then I went to Chicago where the main office was. And then I went over to Korea and worked on a skiff in Korea, South Korea. And then I came back and I was bored. So I left that job and came to the East coast worked a couple of jobs and then I, I went and got a job with Cadell Construction and went to the embassy in Paraguay, Asuncion, Paraguay. And I worked there for a year and I got poached by a better company, Harbert. So then I went to Tegucigalpa, Honduras and worked at that embassy for a year. And then I got my dream job, the Holy Grail, a GS-13 position here in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that's where I'm at now. So, so I work for the, for the Capitol. Which, which agency? Or is it one of the, uh, or was it one of the special ones? It's not a three-letter. Uh, it's it's just the architect of the Capitol. So what the there, hell is that? So the architect of the Capitol right now is Mr. Blanton, Brian Blanton. He is an Academy grad, Naval Academy grad, architect. Great guy. He came on about the same time as I did. I really like this guy. He's got a great vision. He is the 12th architect of the Capitol. So back in the day when they planned the Capitol and the Capitol grounds, I think it was um, Olmsted was the first architect of the Capitol. And he, you know, he planned the architect. It's called the campus. The Capitol grounds is called the campus. And that includes the Capitol Center the three libraries of Congress, the Supreme Court, the Thurgood Marshall Building, uh, the U.S. Botanic Gardens, and a couple other satellite. Uh, so we got the houses, the Rayburn House, the Cannon, the Longworth House. Um, so there's there's all these connected buildings to the Capitol, and it's, it's a pretty massive campus. So there's a lot of these beautiful buildings and historic sites i absolutely get a thrill every time i go into the district and get to go to my job and go to all these buildings and i'm just like a little kid i'm constantly taking pictures i mean it really is a dream job for me i love the history i love the buildings i love i love dc i love this place so much so it to me it is a dream job so do you get behind the scenes access then i do actually so if we were open to tours I can have up to 15 people a day that I can give personalized tours of the Capitol. We can go underground to the Library of Congress through the walkway. Um, I can take you to the some of the Supreme Court. You've got to have a pass. I don't have a badge for the Supreme Court. I have a uh, I have a congressional badge, but I can only go in certain places. The Supreme Court's its own entity, so I can't really go there. But Capitol Visitor Center, I can take people on my own tour, behind the scenes kind of thing. So it is really cool. Um, it's it's so neat to be able to to go in and out of these buildings and the history that's there. I mean, there's nothing that you can walk by and it's just like, oh, that's that. And it's like, oh, no, that was purchased in 1906 and it was brought here and we paid $6,000. You know, I mean, it's it's so cool and the restoration and stuff. I mean, it's just so neat to see some of this stuff. It's yeah. just, I, I was, love it. When did you start that job? February. I came back right as the Rona hit. 
Oh, okay, okay. Because um, I was in DC in September, I think. Of was I there last year? It was either last year or the or I know I was there in 2018, and I hate the place for so many different reasons, <laughs> but I also do completely um, appreciate the place. Like the Navy Yard is still amazing. Oh, I know. And Arlington is, I love, Arlington is just such a beautifully somber place. There's beauty and tragedy, you know, and I know people might not understand that from their perspective, but for me, I, it, it's it's a beautiful sadness when I go there, you know, and I, I love it. And I mean, you've got so many memorials there, you know, there's just, if you don't feel moved by some of these places, I just, I have a, I have worry about you. You know, you've got the veterans, uh, the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, you got the Korean War Memorial, which the, these both have really unique histories. You know, the Korean War Memorial is men, you know, moving through the grass. And if you look at these statues, they're actually about two times bigger than a normal human being. And the person who developed that, I believe made those statues larger than life because he believed the people that did this had to have that kind of strength, this extra, this extraordinary strength to do what they did. You know, I mean, there's, there's just such great history behind every one of these memorials, whether yeah. it's you know, uh, just a, you know, whatever memorial, you know, it's just, it, there's so much stuff to be seen. You can't, you physically cannot see all this stuff in a week. And then you have the Smithsonian. I wish it was open right now too. I love the Smithsonian. It is, I never get tired of it. Yeah, it no, I, I agree completely. And DC, yeah. I was, so I'm thinking in my head, it was the time when I was out there in September of 2018 because it was for a team Navy thing. Um, we stayed at the Marriott, probably, or not probably, right across the street from the stadium. Oh, uh, RFK? Uh, whatever the football, I think it was a football stadium. Maybe three three blocks, two or three street lights up from uh, the Navy Yard. But oh, the, we were down with the... Um where the xfl played actually the navy art the uh i forget i know what stadium you're talking yeah. about yeah but you walk, yeah you yeah. walked down one street and then you cut across and you were at the capitol within like five minutes i just remember i think it was the last night i was there i just did a walk uh probably eight start- nine o'clock at night yeah all the way down um i think i circled the capitol once and then went down the far side so of, the independent uh, runs that way yeah the far side of the mall and walk by all, yeah. all like the commerce building and stuff stuff that you mm-hmm. wouldn't have seen yeah it's cool so let's see um we're not gonna go political but we did <laughs> have a major event that happened um recently with the supreme court justice who passed away what yeah. was that like being <sighs> with with that office that you're in did you guys do anything like to set that up or we get tons and tons of notifications a day from the architect so each each they're called jurisdictions in the capitol grounds gets has their own kind of head of agency and and where's ours is the architect of the capitol so we were just getting notifications of 
when and where um, Justice Ginsburg was going to be laying in state. So I knew before the news knew when and where she was going to be. And um, so I was going in every day during that weekend. My boss was like, hey, do you want to go over to the Supreme Court? And I'm like, yeah. And we had walked over there the first day that she was lying in state. And it was just, we had closed, so we closed off um, First Street there, right in front of the Capitol, Constitution, and Independence. So it was like a big H. So the Capitol was here. So we closed off this street, this street, and this street, uh, right in front of the Supreme Court. So they had lines that were like two and three miles long, just to pass in front of the steps of the Supreme Court. So typically, she would lie inside in the hall. But because of COVID, they had her lying outside. And so it's actually quite a distance from the sidewalk to the top of the steps of the Supreme Court. So you really wouldn't be able to see much from that point. So we walked over there and I was like, well, let's just go to the ceremony. So we walked over that. I think it was Thursday. She was lying in state or Thursday or Friday. She was in the she wasn't in the Capitol Rotunda where they usually put them. They put her in the crypt, which is right below. And so we went to there, but I didn't have a pass pass to go into the crypt. So I was just outside of the crypt. And so, you know, I saw it and then, you know, it was pretty somber. Everybody was told to leave the Capitol unless they had business or they were going to visit. So the Capitol was quite empty that morning. But it was it was a really somber, powerful, sad, inspiring moment. I you know it was it was sad that she was gone, but it, the amount of and I a little, a little political young women that she inspired, um, it was it was pretty great to feel that you know and yeah. so I'm hoping you know her legacy continues on and it and it doesn't stop you know yeah. so. But so do you, do you feel that when you walk through the buildings like the, do, do, do the because I'm assuming you, you get to go backstage, you get to go through yeah. where normal tourists would never know. No. Yeah. And there's when you walk up. So if I go into the side of the cat, so here's the Capitol, like this is the front. If I go in this door, I forget what door this is. Um. And then I can walk up these stairs, these limestone stairs to the rotunda. They're they're worn down, Tom, from hundreds of years of stepping, you know. And God, it's just, you can't not think about the people who walked before you and, and the issues they faced and the history. And the, it's just, it's overwhelming sometimes. And I, I think some people it's lost on them because they, they just kind of in and out, they work there, whatever. For me, it never loses its magic and its mystery and its history. I, I just, I get overwhelmed sometimes looking at some of this stuff and touching it. I mean, there's, there's quite a few hallways in the main Capitol that if you glance at them, you're like, wow, that's great relief work, but it's paint. And you can't tell it's painted until you get right up on it. It is so well painted. It looks like it's carved wood. Tom. Oh, wow. I sat there when when you get hired, you get on this. They put you on a tour of the Capitol, a personal tour, and you get to see the old Supreme Court um, uh, chambers that used to be housed in the Capitol till 1889, I think it was, and then they moved across the street to the new Supreme Court building. And you know, you get to go into these places and see these seats and the old houses and. 
and like I said, the worn down steps and and the the tiles and the paint and you're just it's like seeing to me, I mean a little different, but same kind of premise, like the Sistine Chapel. You know, you look up and you see these paintings and you're like, oh my God, you know, we have some amazing, gorgeous paintings in the Capitol that there's no words to describe the level of artwork, even just on these hallways. And then, you know, you get up into the rotunda and you've got these massive, massive paintings. And then you, and the same thing is on the rotunda top, there's this band of, it looks like a relief, but it's painting. But you would never know that if you didn't know the history behind it. That's you would insane. be like, somebody carved this wall for 10 years. No, they painted it, you know. Well, it's funny, too, that they put so much effort into stuff that obviously the public was never meant to see. I mean, that's why we do the tours now. And they're yeah. really making a lot of updates and really adding a lot of accessibility to the public. They were before Corona, adding a lot of accessibility for people to come in and see the history and learn the history and and see all of the statues and the carvings and the paintings. And they give the, the tour guides who give these tours are excellent. I mean, they're almost like the best history teacher you've ever had. They know everything. You can ask them any question. I mean, they go through rigorous training to be these. They're called CVCs, which are Capital Visitor Center um, tour guides. And they're just the best people. I think they're just the greatest. I love picking their brains if I see them. I'm like, hey, what's this? They're like, well, this statue was given to us. You know, I mean, it's, it's really cool. It's so great. You know, it's, there's so much history. I, like I said, I never, never get tired of driving into the district. Never, not once. I love the sights. I love riding the Metro. I love seeing the buildings. I mean, some of these are just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. I really do love our nation's capital. And so, so I know I'm like geeking out on this. No, no, that's fine. I, I feel <laughs> like I would be remiss if I'm using that word right. Um, to not ask you, knowing what you've already talked about and what you went through on September 11th, going by and seeing the Pentagon, I don't know how often you do. Does it, does it jump back to you? Don't look at it. I have never been to those memorials. I have gone one time to Henderson Hall area where the old building used to stand. I went there one time I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. I, I don't look at it. And I know I've got issues with that. I've been told that, but I just, I do drive, you know, when I go to work, I drive down the George Washington Parkway. So it drives by the mall entrance of the Pentagon. And I briefly look over, I'm like, oh, there's the puzzle palace, you know, but I don't look at it. I'm sure it's beautiful. I'm sure it's reverent and it, you know, I just, I can't bring myself maybe one day, Yeah. but not now, not tomorrow. So yeah. So the closest, closest I get to it is Arlington national cemetery when I go visit friends there. So yeah. That's so it. Have you run into anyone that you served with? Oh, oh yeah. In, in other capacities or still who are serving themselves. Oh yeah. All the time. It's crazy shit. So where was I? Um, mostly now it is uh, the overseas contractor community, which you would think would be massive and huge. It's it's just like the Marine Corps, 
it's it's worldwide and small you know and um so when i was in kyrgyzstan i worked with this guy uh who is an electrician big huge guy six foot something 200 some from uh, alaska so i was sitting in a bar in south korea and i was like dan and he's like dana <laughs> you know here we are like half a world away five years later we're, and he was on my job so he happened to be there so it's cool, and, you know, and right now I've got a contracting officer's technical representative. That was my OBO contracting officer in Azerbaijan. You know, we're sitting in the Supreme Court one day going over a meeting and I was like, I know you. And he's like, I know you, you know, like it's, it's crazy. The people that I run into, or I was on this flight, I was going to Honduras. I'm sitting next to this guy and he's like, oh, you worked for Cadell? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you know a guy named Dave? I was like, I worked with him in Paraguay. You know, I mean, there's so many like six degrees of separation. It's, it's unreal. Have I ran into military folk? Um, I, I was I, talking specifically while you've been in DC. Oh, in DC. Um, just uh, Bill and I were in Azerbaijan together. Oh, Mia, she was in Korea with me. She worked for the Army Corps of Engineers when I was doing a job, when I was doing the skiff there. Her and I went to this uh, quality control class together. So we had actually gotten hired at the same time at AOC. And she's like, weren't you in Korea? And I was like, yeah, weren't you there too? You know, I mean, so I, I have run into a few people here that um, were working with me in different places, but not a whole lot, not a whole lot, you know. Have you been so, able to, have you been able to sneak your kids into some tours while everything's been shut down? I started February 17th and and then we went on telework um, March 17th I've been on telework ever since and everything's been shut down the capital you know at first it was like oh we're closed till April 1st and then it was like June 1st and then you know Labor Day and and now it's indefinitely so we don't know when the capital is going to open up again and it's really disappointing because there's so much stuff to see and all the Smithsonian's are closed. All the tours are closed. Uh, the, the Washington Memorial did reopen, but you have to buy advanced tickets, but all the, but all the other stuff's open Arlington. You can only go if you have family, uh, buried there. Uh, but you can still kind of go up, look and walk away. But the, the cops are real funny about that. The ones who stand out at Arlington national cemetery, they will redirect you back to the Metro. Uh, but but all the other memorials are open, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, um, the uh, the Capitol on the outside. You can go around it you can go around the Supreme Court. You can go around a lot of buildings and look, uh, but everything that's outside, you can go in. But all the really cool museums, like the African-American History Museum, which is a great museum if nobody's ever been to D.C., that is the that is a number one stop because it is one of the newest museums in the capital region, and it's just architecturally outside. It's pleasing. I'm gonna and say it's, it's yeah. I'm gonna, it's I'm gonna say it's a it's a nice museum, but the it's, Native American museum is but, oh yeah that's, that, that's that one good. takes a cake both outside and inside that's yeah, really right i work right by the native american museum one because that's on constitution and third and i walk i work on second and d so yeah it's right there yeah so there's so much stuff to see that you can see that you don't have to go inside yeah. so you could still spend you could still spend a couple days walking around yeah. the district i was gonna say it's not a weekend yeah. it's not a one day or even a weekend 
thing. No, like my sister, she's coming in December for a week and she's coming and she knows nothing's open, but she's coming to go see more. She's been here twice and I walked her to death all over, you know, I'll give the windshield tour. I do the windshield tour. I'll drive by like, what do you want to see? What do you want to see? Pick it out, pick it out. And then I'll go park and then we go see it. But we've done that a couple of times and she's like, all right, now I want to go to this memorial. You know, we have a whole itinerary plan and we're going to go to Annapolis. Annapolis is right here. Amazing, beautiful city. Another great place to go. Another area that you can walk around and see. There's so much stuff here. You have Baltimore, Fells Point, you know, I mean, there's, there is nothing but history and museums here. You know, Gettysburg is 30 miles up the road. I mean, so much stuff to see. So she's coming in December and we have a whole itinerary. We still probably won't see it all. Yeah, definitely. So, probably not. Let's, uh, let's talk about the thing you keep bringing up. So up until uh, you got to DC, I mean, every time I'd see you on Instagram or on Facebook, you were traveling. So mm -hmm. I got it. I got to end your work questionnaire part with uh, the simple question. You were a traveling motherfucker. I'm, I'm going to bet that you probably have millions of frequent flyer miles. Uh, no, <laughs> how does it feel to be grounded? It sucks. Let me tell you, it, it has been, uh, that is one of the hardest things I've had to transition and probably part of the reason why I've, I've come back and left, come back and left. Cause like you get this bug and you can't, you know, you, you get this job overseas and you get this golden paycheck is what we call it. And then you're usually somewhere really not that great, but great places are close by, you know? And, and so you could easily jump off for two, $300 at a pop and, you know, you're making dumb money and you're like, I want to spend it, you know? And so being home and not traveling has really crushed my spirit a bit, you know, and I, I am going to Missouri next week, and then I'm going on a couple trips here in, in November, December, January. So I've got a couple of things trip planned, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'm so excited to get flying again. You know, I, I love traveling. But and I mean, you know, as far as like not traveling for work either. Oh, yeah. Too. That's gonna. I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing it for the benefits. I'm doing it for the benefits. I, you know? I, I was gonna say that because you you can put that what 12, 13 years of, or what 14 years? 16, 16 Six, years. Five months, twenty nine days. Of Navy <laughs> service towards your yeah, GS retirement. Yeah, I can. So. Yeah, anytime I start getting the bug and, and I get I get job offers all the time and I'm like, oh, I'm like, you're doing it for the benefits. You're doing it for the benefits. You know, I got to give myself this pep talk. You're just 13. You've got all these great government benefits, you know? Yeah, so it, it's hard. It's really hard, especially, you know, I still have a lot of friends in the industry and I'm on a lot. Of, we have a lot of like group chats and they're always messaging me, you know, I've got buddies down in Mexico city. I've got friends still in Paraguay. I got a guy, a buddy of mine's in Stuttgart, Germany. And he's like, Hey, you want to come work in Germany? We need a project controls engineer. And I'm like, ah, no, no, I don't want to go. <laughs> you know, I think, I think you should start one of these and uh, give people advice on how to do contracting work. Oh man. Contracting is a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing man yeah it's it's easy it's easy for me because i've been doing it for years but it is it is a game it's a delicate dance you know and uh 
Yeah, I, I miss it. I really do. Did you but, did, you know, did you did you work with a lot of the um, mail contractor types, the private security guys? Uh yeah, yeah. We had PSDs and stuff like that on some of my jobs. So yeah. And then some of the guys, like one of my guys, he him and I worked in Pernix together for four years. He's in Baltimore now finishing his master's and he works for the army corps he was on a psd in afghanistan prior to coming to pernix when we worked together in pernix so a lot of these guys they either started out in security and they became something else or they were something and then they went to security so yeah there's there's a whole slew of security companies out there because the embassies that i worked at Typically, the two contractors that I worked with was Khaki and Deco, and they provided the CAGs and the CSCs, which were construction, um, CAG is, forget what the A stands for, construction something, guard, and then construction surveillance technician. So those guys watched us like pour concrete and stuff like that, make sure no bugs were going in there. Like, like we're going to listen to you bugs, not not fly bugs. But <laughs> for probably, those, probably good that you don't have either. When it's yeah, yeah. Well, I get some bugs in concrete, but but yeah. So I mean, a lot of these guys they they start out in security and they go they they see how much money we make on the contracting side. Do you guys and, make more than oh, them? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh wow. Big, yeah, yeah. Good money, good money to be had. If you're an engineer, an architect, if you've got experience. Call me. I can hook you up. I know a lot of recruiters. So well, I mean, I. Th I'm surprised that I haven't seen more CBs go your route. Yeah. Um, actually, there are quite a few. There's a lot. I ran into a lot of Navy CBs, but they were a generation older. So oh, okay. a lot of them were in their late 50s, early 60s, and had been, you know, grandfathered in. And I think that's part of the reason. So the generation before me that was that is in this construction industry that was with me. They were grandfathered and they had all this experience in this time. So the Department of State was, okay, we'll hire you because you have 10 to 15 years experience. Now they've changed their contract requirements that you have to have a degree in civil, electrical, mechanical engineering, and you got to have five years experience. Oh. You know, I kind of got in under that too. So what I do is I am a project controls engineer um project scheduler so i work with oracle primavera p6 and i do cost loaded um cpm schedules which are the entire construction schedule that are cost loaded with manpower and costs and i run the entire construction schedule with the site superintendent the project manager and the construction manager so i have to know how construction processes are done and how the building comes together in order to make this this logical sequenced cost loaded schedule for the government and that is the basis for the monthly payments so while i was grandfathered as well i was kind of in that last group that got grandfathered now project controls engineers require an engineering or construction management degree i don't oh, have that management degree and i have a half a master's if i ever finish it so god damn it Dana. <laughs> so, yeah i mean but that's a that's the same issue that uh corman had with private yeah, contracting they have um, all this Experience, but no no degree or yeah. no 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 piece of paper saying emtb because you know the navy doesn't want us to have it yeah so. but you know safety managers are big money in that industry and you yeah. don't have to have a degree you just got to have experience and some certifications some general ones you know like osha 30 osha 40 you know stuff like that and experience and i'll tell you what safety managers you know andre 
I think yeah. he's a safe janitor. He makes big money doing yeah, he, what he does. He he's the only contractor or the only guy I know that does contracting, but he's not doing it outside. He's never left the country. He could. Okay. He doesn't yeah. want to. Yeah. yeah, he totally could. I'll tell you what, safety managers, there's nobody I see get offered more money than safety managers with the right certificates. One of my really? buddies has five hundred. Man, that guy could walk on water and piss eggs. Like he could get a job anywhere, any country he wants, any country, because of the cert certifications he's got. And he's got experience. You know, he's been doing safety for like 20 years. I mean, if you have a minimum of five years and you got a couple certificates, I'll tell you what, most construction companies would be like, you're hired. Nice. Safety, safety programs are a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And that's a lot of reason why safety managers get paid so much. I mean, they're responsible for everybody on that site. They have a lot of programs. They get a lot of people working for them. You know, safety teams are massive. I was on the safety team on most of my projects. You know, it's it's a lot of work. So safety managers, they get paid a lot, but they do a lot of work. They do that a lot is, of work. That is very true. Um, so where we went down a rabbit hole there where, where I was going with that is so you get back here you start working in February and the magic happens that's the called COVID. <laughs> um the road. so it's been shut I mean DC's pretty much been shut down from what you're saying as far as uh, public spaces it's, not, it's 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 open again it's just your your high traffic areas aren't the Smithsonian okay. The, uh, you know, the African American History Museum, the Space and Air Museum, you know, they're still running with uh, skeleton crews. You know, they still got the people cleaning. They still got administrators. Everybody's still got their jobs. It's just there's no public access because they want to minimize exposure. So, oh, okay. yeah. So D.C., traffic's picking up. Let me tell you. Uh, there for a while it was smooth sailing right into the district no traffic no, no stopping no nothing you know it was great but now it's it's starting to pick up you've got to kind of plan a little more now but it's dc's back in business it's just some stuff you know a lot of the major restaurants are open you just have to make reservations now you know it's kind of we're like we've kind of moved into like european mindset you can't just walk out the door and have dinner anymore you got to make reservations oh, so okay. yeah everything's still going good so has it affected you personally? Uh, yeah, I got the Rona. <laughs> In so, fact. <laughs> you, so you are officially. I call it that. It's fun. You know, yeah. I got to make fun of it. But... No, but you are officially the second uh, one degree of separation person I've, I know that has had right. it. Right. Right. He knows anybody who's had it. No, I mean, uh, I can't even go. I may be able to go out to three, three steps out. A friend of only, a friend who I'm the only person I know that's got it yeah. personally. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm part of a study. I did the antibody test and I came back inconclusive. Oh, uh, yeah. So it, I don't it, know exactly what that means. I'm assuming that, that if I that didn't means. get exposed, uh, but I inconclusive too. Uh, when I was trying to test negative, <laughs> then it was counted as a positive. So I'd go take another. I've taken like five tests. It's great. So, so when how I was, was that? When I was speaking with you in Missouri, I was sick and uh, I kind of knew it and I was keeping my distance. So I had, before I left, uh, I had like this massive headache and I, I get migraines and stuff. And I thought it was sinuses because I had never been in the States during this time of year. I'm never in the States this long. So sinus, I usually get sinuses real bad and stuff like that, sinus infections and 
So the day before I was flying out to Missouri, I was like, God, my sinuses. And I thought it was my sinuses because when I would lean forward, it would just be this, you know, seeing stars, all this pressure right, right here, right behind my eyes. And my ear hurt real bad, real bad. And I was like, God, I must be getting a sinus infection. So about two days into Missouri, I wake up and I have my coffee and I'm like, tastes like hot water. I couldn't taste anything. Really? I so you had the full loss of taste? I still do. I haven't got it back. Oh, wow. uh, I half and half. Some days are better than others, but uh, I lost my sense of taste and smell solid for 10 days. And so, okay, uh, so I was going to ask the smell went to that was yeah, that was the only symptom I had other than a runny nose. And my son got sick for four days and all he had was a runny nose was sneezing a lot, snotting a lot. And then it was gone. And he, he tested positive. Uh, my daughter, nothing. She's bouncing off the walls. I'm not sick. I'm fine. You know, and she's, she's still great. But for me, my, my taste started slowly coming back and then it would kind of take two steps back. I, some days I can taste great. Some days everything tastes like hot or cold water or stuff with texture. You know, it, it was really, really disheartening and nerve wracking to lose my taste and smell. Um, and there's so much, there's gotta be so much science tied to like hunger and your brain because I would kind of think I was hungry, but I wasn't smelling anything to make my stomach rumble. And, and so I would, you know, like, oh, should I eat? And I'd go, well, it's been like eight hours. And so I'd start eating something and I couldn't taste it. And I didn't want to keep eating and I wouldn't eat it. And, and it was just crazy. I, I, I went like that for days, you know, I would eat maybe half a banana and I just get disgusted with it. And I just, I would throw it away because it couldn't taste anything. And I didn't know if I was full or not. And it was the strangest sensation because there has to be this massive connection between smell and brain and stomach. And I wasn't getting that connection. So I would eat and I'd be like, I don't know if I'm full or not. I really couldn't tell. And I like, oh, well, no, I don't there, know. There, there actually is a connection between smell and um, feeling full. Yeah. Insatiated. It, it, yeah, no. it's a, it's, a, it's like a trigger to get your body prepared to actually start to process food. It was. So I get, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And I was really worried that I wasn't going to get my smell back and my taste because I was reading these articles where some people weren't getting it back at all. And like I said, I still don't have it back. Um, thank God I can taste my coffee. <laughs> that was rough. That was the worst. I would sit there and drink coffee all day. You're, you and, were a dirt sailor. So, yeah, you, you need yeah, to. My kids were like, can you taste it? I was like, nope. And they were like, why are you drinking it? I was like, because. <laughs> Did uh... It's mental. <laughs> So you and I can agree or disagree on this, but I think there's been a lot of fear pushed around COVID. I, I um, think there's so much fear mongering with this and they don't talk about people like me and they don't talk about people like my son who get it and it's gone. Yeah. And we weren't sick. We didn't ever have a cough. We didn't never have a fever. And I'll tell you what, the department of health rang my phone like the jehovah's witnesses they were calling me four times a day how's your fever i never had a fever how's your so you haven't had a fever and and the the communication that i was getting from the department of health 
And then from my own doctor, because they send your results to everybody. So the Department of Health, my own doctor, and then the CDC, you know, everybody's sending me emails and they're calling me and they're texting me and they're like, how's your fever? I'm like, well, I haven't had a fever. So have you been 24 hours without a fever? I'm like, no, I haven't had a fever. Well, if you're 24 hours free, you can go out. And I'm like, well, I think I still have symptoms. I have a runny nose. Oh no, you're fine. I, I don't think so because my son got a runny nose from my runny nose and then he lost his sense of taste. So tell me, uh, they're like, well, if you haven't had fever, you're fine. You know, it, it was so much conflicting evidence, so much conflicting, like what you should do, what you shouldn't do. You know, I was getting told I had to isolate for 10 days from day of exposure. And then it was like, no, 14 days from your positive test. No, you have to wait 10 days before you can retest. No, you can retest now. I mean, it, so I, I started blocking the numbers. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take the text messages. Couldn't take the calls. I got tired of the fucking emails. I mean, it was, nobody was giving the same stuff. And then all you're hearing on the news is doom and gloom. Everybody's dying. So I was going to ask you, so what, did, what, what was your reaction when, because of all the doom and gloom and everyone's dying, what was your reaction when the test I, came what, back positive? Well, I knew it was going to be positive. I knew. I lost my sense of taste and smell. That was like the number one indicator. I was like, I've got. But did you did you think that maybe it was going to go bad or? No, I I did have a little worry because of my son. I didn't give a shit about myself. I worried about my son, so I was helicoptering the shit out of him. I was like, How do you feel? You feel okay? Do you get a fever? Do you get a cough? You know, I I. Oh, so you I, were do you were doing what the health department was doing to you to your son? Yeah, but it was to my my <laughs> offspring, you know. So I was feeding him like mucinex and shit like that to dry it up 24. So I was waking him up in the middle of the night, giving it to him because he did get a little cough, a little wet cough, but it was just from all the shit running down the back of his throat. But like I said, after four days, it was gone. It, it, I mean, it disappeared as fast as it showed up. Everything that you have described, um, minus the loss of taste and smell I've had in the last two months. And yeah. would have never even, and never even considered going to get tested. No fever, no cough, always sneezing. So to me, that's sinuses. That's not Corona. Yeah. And my son, he didn't lose his taste like I did. He woke up one morning and he's like, oh, I couldn't really taste my Pop-Tarts. And dinner was a little bland, but the next day he was like, oh, everything tastes the same again. It just kind of dipped down a little bit and then it went back, you know? And so... I worried because I was around my mother. She's immune compromised, you know? So I was for two weeks every day, I was like, mom, how do you feel? Do you feel okay? You know? And once we got past that 10 days, I was like, all right, I can relax. My mom is fine. My son's fine. My daughter's fine. Life is good. I'm, I'm well, you know, my work freaked out. Jesus. But because, you were you know, telecommuting, weren't you? Well, I had gone in. Oh, okay. But, where I flew to Missouri. And so I was technically, uh, uh, you know, transmitting at that time and we work for Congress. And so oh, we, okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, there, so they were like, data tested positive, <gasps> ah! you know, and they're like doing contract, tra contract raising. And my boss was like, where were you? What did you go? What bathroom did you go into? I was like, Jesus Christ, what elevate, you know, I didn't tell the elevator I was on, you know, I'm like, I don't know the second one from the end, you know? <laughs> so do you know how you got it? I don't. Because I didn't, uh, I, I have a suspicion, I think it was the gym, because the gyms opened up back here in the metro area, and my gym, I won't say who it is, because I don't want to put that out there, you had to wear your mask going in, and once you got to your machine, you could take it off, 
or if you were lifting weights, you could take it off. And man, if you go in that weightlifting area, there was no social distancing. The best you got for social distancing was like being on this machine. The next one next to you was empty. And then, you know, that, that was the best social distancing you got. And even though I was wiping everything down, I, I think I got it there because I, I wasn't going anywhere else. You know, I went to the store once a week and I went to work every other day, but work, there would be nobody there. And we had to wear our masks the whole time. So I really think it was the gym because that was the only place I didn't wear my mask. I will say I did get a little nervous at how easily it was transmitted because I was sick, but, but also on that, on that note, it's not. And why I say this is I was sick in Missouri. Okay. And, uh, I knew I was sick and I knew something was wrong. So I kept my distance. However, I was with my mom and I shared a water with my mom. I was with my sister drinking. Remember when I was, when I was on the phone with you and we had dinner and breakfast and lunch together. And we were like this close, you know, my dad was there and then I come home and I give my son a hug and I'm like, Hey, I forgot. I think I have Rona, you know, stay away. The de- the next day he's sick. So my mom, my sister, my dad, my nephew, my niece, her baby girl was in my lap. All these people I was close to, physically close, shared drinks with before I was like, hey, maybe I shouldn't do this. They did not get it. I get home and give my son a hug. The next day, he's got it. Okay, I've been so gone for five. I'm going to tell you gone. this. I'm going to tell you this. You probably had it before you left because it takes three to five days for it to kick in. So it says, and he but, probably had it before you left too. But, but still, but even still, all those people I saw in Missouri never got sick. Not, That's because not, they're <laughs> fucking Missourians. Missourians? Yeah, Missourians. <laughs> yeah, so none of these people got sick. So it really picks and chooses, but it's it, it's highly contagious, but then it's not. I, it yeah. really depends on the moment, I guess, you know? Yeah. And uh, to be honest with you, I was way sicker in South America a year ago than I ever was with this. I had gone, I was in Paraguay and I'd gone to Argentina for a weekend to Buenos Aires. And the day I was leaving, I woke up, I went to bed like this. I woke up with a full blown chest cold. By that night, I was in Argentina and I was struggling to breathe and I couldn't breathe and I had I was smoking at the time, but I had stopped smoking because I was like, this is going to kill me. And uh, I was sitting upright in the hotel room, struggling to breathe, running a fever so badly that I went to the hospital the next day and they were like, oh, you have bronchitis, you know, and they gave me my x-ray and I walked around Argentina thinking, oh, I just have bronchitis. And uh, I was so sick the next day I flew back to Paraguay and I told my driver, I said, I have got to go to the emergency room. We drive to the emergency room and they're like looking at me like I've got the plague. Like my driver's like, you're really sick, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. So I go in and I give them my x-ray and they're like, you have influenza. And I was like, no, I don't. I have bronchitis. They're like, no, you do. You know, and they did a test and they put me on oxygen and they gave me a nebulizer. And sure enough, it was influenza A. And I have never been so sick, Tom. And it, it just, you know, I went to bed healthy and woke up severely ill i was more scared there than i was here because you know i was in a foreign country i was struggling to breathe i got sick i didn't know how i got sick and i was traveling internationally like a dumbass you know (laughs) 
patient zero. That's all I kept thinking on the plane. I was like, they're going to trace it back to me. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Dana. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you ever think back and wonder what would happen if you would have picked up chief? Because I think you would have that year. I think I did, actually, because um, they had to notify the board. That's about, right. I remember that. Yeah, I think I did. And that was that that hurt the most. Uh, I do. Um, but, you know, I'm a I'm a card carrying member of everything happens for a reason. And uh, I think I needed that uh, kick in the ass to a point because I, I think I was a dick. You know, I think I was a, a stuck up my shit didn't stink petty officer in a, in a certain, uh, certain aspect. I, I do think I cared a lot about my people and took care of them, but I also thought I was a, you were a mama bear. Huh? You were a mama bear. I, yeah. But I was also like a dickhead too. So yeah. <laughs> I had my moments. But, but, but yeah. the mama bears are always have their dickhead moments. Yeah. You know? And so it was humbling. And I, I think everybody needs to have, somewhat of a humbling epiphany in their life you know and it it really made me sit down and realize I didn't have a plan for after the navy and I think a lot of people face that and I've tried to mentor people in that I'm like hey the navy's not always going to be there you need to start thinking forward and a lot of people don't you know I got busted I didn't have a degree I had an associate's degree I got busted and the next I think the next month I went to the college office and I said, what degree? I, I told him, I said, I get out May 1st. What degree can I get before then? She said, well, if you take four classes a semester, you can get a bachelor's in uh, business management. I said, great, sign me up. I was going to school full time. I don't know if anybody knew that. I was taking four classes a semester all the way up until I left the Navy. I graduated in April of 2012 and I left May. I was going full time seven days a week. I, I'd have one week off this semester. I was capping out on TA. I was doing top up. I enacted my GI bill. I mean, I was, I was turning and burning, man. I graduated with a 3.91 because I was like, I have to have a degree. I will not leave this Navy without a degree. And I tell people, I'm like, you've got to, you've got to think when the Navy's not there, what am I going to do? And I try to give people this advice and they're like, no, I got a job set up for when I get out. I'm like, good luck. However, what if it falls through? You know, you've got to think about this. And I think there's a lot of great uh, programs out there for veterans, but I don't think they're realistic. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that 100%. I, you know, you get all these guys who are like, we're going to help you get a job when you leave the military. No, no, no. Don't help them get a job. Give them the tools to get the job. Tell them what they got to do a year or two years out. You know, help them write a decent resume. I'll tell you what, some of those resume classes I went to, Jesus Christ, what a waste. Yeah. They don't teach you anything, you know, tell people what they need to look for. It takes on average nine months to a year to get a job after you separate. So that means you need to be looking prior to, you know, a lot of people wait. They're like, oh, I'm getting out next month. I'm looking for jobs now, man. Yeah. You better no, be saving money. There, there was, know? there was a office of personal personnel management uh, representative for the wounded warriors at Bamsey who would give these classes. I think she said at one point in time, um, it is, what, what is it? It's for every $10,000 you expect to make, plan a month worth of job search. So if you planned on making 
a hundred thousand dollars a year, you should be yep. a minimum of 10 months to yeah. get hired for that job. Oh yeah. It's, oh. uh, it's crazy, you know, and I'm finally at the point in my career where I've got enough experience and enough certificates that people are seeking me out. I don't have to look anymore. And I, I haven't had to look for the last three years. I've kind of hit that, that magical middle ground where I am experienced enough that people, recruiters are searching me out. I'm not looking for the job and begging for it and getting the thanks, you know, but not right now emails, you know, I, there's some jobs that I applied for with like Boeing and Booz Allen Hamilton and stuff like that. I got a rejection like a year and a half later. I mean, it was, it was crazy. It, you know, like I said, I've been out, it's eight and a half years now. And, and like I said, I'm just now at the point where recruiters are asking me to come work for their company. You know, they're offering me these crazy packages and I'm like, thanks. No, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice ego boost, but I've worked really hard to get to this point. It's taken a long time. It's taken a lot of blood, sweat and tears and years away from the United States and my kids to get to this point where I've got this GS 13 job. It's very rare, you hear about it, but it's very rare that people walk out of the military if they're not an officer well, and even walk that, into a GS-12 yeah. or higher. If, if, you you, know? if you're a, I'm going to say if you're a 07 or higher, definitely a flag officer, your checks your check is written. Oh, yeah, you but got it. Even you, maybe 06, you know, you're it, C-level. You're kind of C-level there. Yeah, if, you, if you're... If you're a CMC, so an E9, there's a good chance that you can write your own ticket. Yeah. Outside of that? Yeah. yeah. And I, I can't tell you how many times, Tom, I've had guys come to me and, and they'll be like, hey, I'm getting out. And I'm like, cool. Do you know what you want to do? I have a lot. I, I network like a motherfucker. I, I make friends and give my cards out like confetti. I'll tell you what. I'll make friends with anybody. Look at my LinkedIn. You know, I. I'll be like, hey, what do you want to do? I know people. I literally know people all around the world in every industry. What do you want to do? Oh, I got a job lined up. Okay. What is it? Oh, it's a government job. It's a GS. I'm like, uh, okay, good luck. Yeah. Took me years to get mine, but I'm not saying it's like that for everybody, but it's 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 not easy. You yeah. gotta you gotta do the time. You gotta do the time. You and in military service, I'm sorry, it doesn't equate a lot. Nine times ten, it doesn't no, trade. I've seen that so much where it does, it doesn't. It, the thank you for your service is about the only thing you can expect when you get out. Um, yeah, got a lot of those emails. Yeah, I'm on my talk with Adam yesterday. So he, like I said, he was doing uh, military corrections. We were talking about, you know, he, he was living in Southern California with his wife, his kids as an E6. So think E6, about the same time of service that you did between me and you, 14 to 16 years. Um, Southern California BAH in 2014 for an E6 with dependents. And he did a lot of travel for his corrections thing. So a lot of per diem and being told because he was being med, he got med boarded out. Well, all you're gonna get is half of your um e6 base pay mm. so we were talking it's like for me i i had my 
I was probably making seven, eight grand a month as an E7. Um, and then because remember, I was a mobilized reservist from a very yeah. high BAH uh, town. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that made a huge difference in my paycheck. But at the end of the day, my, what was it like? I think it was 3,800 was my base pay. Um, because I think I was still frocked as a, as a chief. So I was still getting E6 right up to the last minute. Yeah. And so that would have been 2,100 bucks a month going, literally going from, uh eight grand a month to 2600 bucks a month and people don't take that into account they see i'm making eight grand i got the bah i got my c duty pay i got my idc pay i got all my special duty pays i'm rolling in i'm banking this down here yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah. like no 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 all that stuff instantly goes away your your 50 is 50 percent of that first thing your e or yeah. o number I'll tell you what, taxes were, were a rude awakening for me. I was like, what? Because <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, when half of your paycheck is BAH, that it's not taxed, it changes. Yeah. And then yeah. your whole paycheck becomes taxed. Yeah, it's it's a rude awakening. It really is. And people don't really. And then you have all these expenses you're not used to. If you're not retired or you're not fully disabled like you and I are, where we have Medicare and all that shit. You know, you've got medical, dental, dental is like a freaking house payment, you know, for insurance alone, you well, know, and then you have kids on top of that. Yeah. And then, and then you've got car payments and insurance and, you know, now you got a house payment, you're not getting extra money to make your rent, you know, and, and taxes, you're getting fully taxed now that you never were, you know, we, we got taxed on our lowest common denominator, all the other extra shit we weren't taxed on. So we weren't used to these level of taxes. I mean, on one of my jobs, Tom, I was getting taxed $3,000 a paycheck, if that gives you any indication. So yeah, and I was like, fuck, you know, my taxes alone is somebody else's salary. You know, it, it was ridiculous. So I, it's a rude awakening and people and, and military members, for some reason, don't want advice. They just don't, they got it figured out. They got everything. And I tell you, it's, they really need to, to get a different mindset and start training our military members to, to understand how the civilian world works. And it's, it's not just a tap class, you know? Well, and the, the, the people, no offense to government employees. Yeah. But I don't think that they, that like the, not you, cause you've done the civilian contractor stuff, but I don't think a lot of people who have been you know, fresh out of college, straight into a GS job, really understand. They're almost military themselves in the way that they think. And they're the yeah, ones running they, the class. They totally, are. they totally are because they're kind of groomed that way, you yeah. know, and I, it, I see it in my job now. There's so many times where I'm like, damn, you would have been great in the military because of the way you think, you know, yeah. I just, it, it is, it, it is a different level. And, and like I said, we just really are setting I said this when I was in and I still, I still hold this is, is we set our military members up to fail when they leave. We, yeah. we, we don't do anything to support them. They say they do. And there's some, there may be some agencies out there that do it, but they're not mainstream enough to handle the, the amount that we have. And I think that contributes a lot to service member suicide because they can't handle the pressures because they didn't ever think it was going to be like that. 
and they've got nobody to turn to and and so then the the only thing they have is not equipped to support them and and so they don't think they have anything and it's it's frustrating to see that well tell me how you would think that a multiple tour combat uh e6 would feel having to take a job where he's working for a 19 year old who's never served Right. And, and not only that, the way he's been taught to do his job, now he's got to fucking use kid gloves because it's a kind of gentler world. And I can't tell you how to do your job because I'm hurting your feelings, you know, yeah. when you're over there carrying weapons and you're in charge of somebody's life, you know, it, it doesn't transition. There's got to be something else. And, and I, it's disheartening and disappointing to see that we're all coming up on 2021 and it's still not in place it's still not there there's people trying i'm not discounting that and i'm not discounting the agencies that are actively working for our service members it's just like i said it's not mainstream enough it's not in enough places it's not being picked up enough there's a lot of people who are like we support our veterans it's great but they don't really do anything with that follow-through yeah. well oh. in, in in all fairness to at least the community of veterans that i i was part of uh there are some really shitty wounded warrior veterans that get go out there and just abuse any charity system that's there um, yeah, they, I, think I, you, I think you remember one of the wounded warriors that was at the hospital that worked that it came in from that ship that had the boiler accident young kid uh mm3 type i, I think know. he got busted a few times for uh abusing some of that stuff but it's like you get these kids and literally he was a kid. I think he was like 22 and, you know, everyone was treating him like a God, you know, because yeah. he had a ship accident, not even in combat. Yeah. And, you know, they were giving him uh, the TSGLI, which they don't dig. So one of the things that happens when you have a severe injury, whether it's being blown up or, um, you're an aircraft mechanic and you get your legs stuck in a jet engine and ripped off. I, I just literally made that up. Um, happened. <laughs> uh, probably did happen at some point in time. They give you TSGLI, uh, which is a payout. And there's three different levels. There's a 50,000, a 75 and a hundred thousand dollar payout. Ooh. It's traumatic service group life insurance. Basically you've lost something big and you get paid out. What does a, and I knew several of these, a uh, PFC in the Marine. So 19 years old gets his leg blown off. Um, what's the yeah. first thing he does with that hundred grand goes he out and buys a Porsche or something. Goes, yeah. I was like Camaro Porsche, something. Yeah. yeah. See, there needs to be some, some check valves in place. And what I mean is they need to do like financial planning. They need to set him up with yeah. a CPA and a lawyer. You can't dump a hundred grand on a 12, 21 year old and expect them to wisely put that money away. There's a onesies and twosies out there, but the general population, we didn't join the military because we were well off. Let's well, and, it, it, and to be yeah. frank with you, it wasn't even just the PFCs. I had a friend, Kevin. Um, he was a double amputee, severe burn patient, SF uh, sniper guy. He got his $100,000 and there's a little place up uh, the road from the Nosk at 410 and 35 that has a lovely name with gentlemen in it. Um, I think <laughs> Sam, San Antonio Men's Club or something like yeah. Gentlemen's Club. Yeah, uh, right by the um, Yep, there, there were right by Cowboys actually. Don't tell me where I think this is going. Well, let's just say there was a couple nights that because he couldn't drive, I drove 
um, which is a whole nother bad idea where he would, they had a $400 a shot brandy. He would buy like three or four of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not just the kids. Like when you, when you're dumped a ton of money, I guess people just assume it's always going to be there. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, so I always try to do this and some, and until I get better at this, I have to explain it. So the show is actually called after the battle campfire, which is based off the old way that we used to fight wars where we didn't go fight and come home within like an hour of the battle. Yeah. And, you know, so we would be out there, um, fight during the day and then have campfires where we tell our story. The channels, the modern Ronin. And what I was doing with that was, you know, a lot of us have left service before our time, before we were ready. Yeah. Uh, so in a Ronin, someone who not just Max's way of looking at it, that you're a badass mercenary guy, but uh, you know exactly who I'm talking about, but someone who, who wants to serve. So if I had to ask, what does it mean to be a modern Ronin to you? <sighs> What a loaded question, man. You could have gave me this beforehand. <laughs> You're like the third person that said that to me. <laughs> I need that ex- existential thinking, Dana. It is. God, all my military training and religions. Um, I, God, I don't know. You know, we're, we're nomads. There, there's a, a select group of us, and I think you know what I'm talking about. You, me, Max. We're always searching. And we're, we're nomadic in our lifestyle and, and we're, we're happy, but we're not happy because we haven't found it and we don't know what it is, but the closest we've gotten to it was in the military and with our brothers and sisters and embracing the suck and, and in those shitty times were the best times. They were our glory days. They were our heydays. And, and I think we're always trying to find our way back to that. And, and we're trying to make that situation that we have, we're trying to, you know, we're, we're in love with a memory and we're trying to make that memory last a lifetime in a, in a way that we can relate to now that we don't have anymore. And so we're searching those people out like you and like Max and me, you know, we keep our ties close because it's the closest thing we have to that. And we, we try to keep that. And I think that, you know, we we don't have that fight to fight anymore. So we we're picking our battles the best we can, but yeah. we're still mad. We're still searching. We don't know what we're searching for, but we're searching. We're, so. One day we'll find it, maybe. But on that note, it'll be fun. <laughs> it will be. Dana, thank you so much for coming on, and I hope to do this again. Oh I think, yeah, I yeah. think you have a lot more to say. I don't know if I count as a modern Ronin or after the battle. I've never been to battle, so. I but, no, that's just, but your service, it, it, it was a battle. <laughs> Uphill all the way, man. And, and <laughs> trust trust me, you have seen more than some Master Chiefs I know. <laughs> oh, man, I've got stories. I've got some stories. Let me tell you, if we ever do like another podcast, I've got the overseas contractor story. One day I'm going to write a book on that, but everybody's name and location have to be changed to protect the guilty because, man, <laughs> we have done some stuff. Let me tell you.
it's it's been a fun ride i've i've got i've got books planned if i could ever sit down and write so. i think i like i said i think you should start one of these and you could have a really interesting dana's contractor stories <laughs> there's a <laughs> we used to talk about having like a uh, a reality show but we were like we would never get work again we'd all be fired <laughs> let's just say we're lucky there was never a breathalyzer at the front door of some of our jobs because <laughs> they'd be like whoa go we did play with one at work a couple times but <laughs> i can already i can already see your show the person sitting on your side face the, the, blurred with the yeah, with the with the they're blurred and their voices are like gross. Yeah. yeah. It, it, so this one time in country south of the equator, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, that's good stuff. It's been great, Tom. And don't make me look a fool on that first one. No, you're not. You're gonna look great. You <laughs> will. <about> <laughs> Maybe I'll send you a clip. That would be lovely. Thanks. <laughs> Considering it's lovely. going up in like 48 hours. No, can I see it before, please? <laughs> I'll send you something. I promise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know I was waving a lot. The camera was in and out, and I was a little no, angry. Honestly, the the I was a little bit more concerned with the audio quality, and it actually sounds pretty good. Oh, good, 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 um, good. Yeah, you also had a beer in your hand, so I think everyone was already under the assumption that. Oh, oh no, no, no! There was it was vodka. It was oh, mostly. Was it? And that was not my first one. <laughs> uh, well, that much we we know. But you're also a goddamn sailor. No matter how much you don't want to be a sailor anymore, it's in your blood. It's in your veins. That's right, man. I joined right out of baby school. <laughs> so last question for you. Join the baby. <laughs> last question for you. Did you get more tattoos since uh, you got out? I did. So in Korea, I got, I oh, got wow. this. And then my elbows done, right? And then in Paraguay, I got this, okay. and then I, I got these here, and then I'm gonna eventually get this done, and then this hand. So I, this is my business hand, though. I'm really kind of hesitant to do this one, even though this one's done. You need to I do want... like the inside of the hand. Ah, oh, no, because this, this is like I've had this done three times, and I tell you what, it felt like he was tattooing my eyeballs. They hurt so bad. This hurt. This skin is so thick and it is so tough. I mean, it just feels like they're cutting your finger off. It is. It's terribly painful. Do you, I will my palm. Do God bless. Do you remember uh, Kevin Murray? Uh, Reservist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tat it out, man. Yeah, I love it. I, I ran into him uh, Thursday. He was out for a walk. He walks by my place every so often. This massive beard. He's all tatted out. I'm like, that, yeah, brother. That great. guy walks around with no shirt on. I would do. Uh, yeah, and I'm just like, damn. Every time I see you, yeah. But did you, you you know he was a school teacher for the longest time? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like That's... kind, gentle school teacher. Now you look at him, and you're like, god damn, you are the walking Popeye. <laughs> he is. He's got a massive ship on his chest. I think, doesn't he? Yeah, like a massive, massive ship. And I love. He, That's great stuff, man. He showed One me these... the. Oh, I was going to say he showed me the beginning of his back tattoo. Um, he's doing a big nautical map. I'll tell you what, if anybody ever goes to South Korea, you got to go to my tattoo artist there. He's fucking amazing. He did my arms. He did he did my underarms and my elbows. And uh, God, he's talented. Oh, he does the most amazing work over in South Korea. 
uh, Ink Master Ray. I'm gonna give you a shout out. He's my brother. He's on Facebook with me. I love that guy. He is so talented in South Korea. If you ever go there, gotta see this guy. Does he do uh, the tap, or does he do? Oh, the but gun? He does traditional Asian art, and he can he can draw anything. He does the most beautiful portrait. I mean, I I can't talk enough good stuff about this guy. Oops, oh. sorry, my phone. Uh, yeah, sorry, got a phone no, call coming. But yeah, I can't talk enough good stuff about that guy. If I ever go back, man, I'm gonna get like my whole back done and my chest redone. It, yeah, he's he's amazing. Great light touch, beautiful artwork. Him and his wife are just they're great people. I need to start. I need to yeah. start on my sleeve, my my yeah. navy sleeve. There you go. That's yeah. that's the only like navy thing I got right there. That's really the navy thing. My anchor. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Well, on that note, Dana, I'm going to end the uh, recording. Thank you so much for All listening. right, Tom. It was great. And I hope you Until can follow us time. on social. <laughs> Definitely. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.